The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on News Talk 1493.9 FM. You're invited to join the program by calling 217-356-9397 or send a text on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 217-351-5357. Opinions and views expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of the station. And now, On the Money with your host, Paul Rudy. Well, welcome everybody to Paul Rudy's On the Money. First Tuesday, well, first, second Tuesday, first show of May. Glad to be here today. I'm with a couple of my uh, regular guests. And then I have an irregular guest. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding, George. I'll get to George in a minute. And uh, anyway, thanks for joining Paul Rudy's On the Money. Dr. Fred Gertz is traveling today, so he's out of pocket. We'll miss him, but we will... I believe he's going to be back for the next show. I have certified financial planner professionals Ryan Repko and David Rudy with me, who work with me at Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, fellas. Good morning. Oh, Good you're morning. holding down the office this morning. You can call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also message your message. You can also email your question to talk at wdws.com. See, George, everybody makes mistakes on the radio, especially Dave. It's important to recognize the future uh, and past. Recognize the future. I really got the. Maybe I had too much coffee today, George. <laughs> it's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, good morning, guys, and and I'm going to introduce George Brustis. Uh, I met George. Uh, you're out of sh the Chicago area, Barrington. Yes, that's correct. And I, my wife got a call. She works at Rudy Wealth as well. And she says, hey, this uh, really nice guy, George, called. And his daughter goes to the UI, and he just wanted to connect with you about something. And, and I was normally, I told, told my wife, ah, I'm not calling him back. She goes, no, no, this guy was really, really nice. You really need to call him back. <laughs> so I called you back, didn't I, George? Well, I, I guess that's... Yeah, I'm great to hear that. Yeah, <laughs> so, welcome to the show. Thank you. I brought George in today, and, and, and probably in the second half of the show, uh, we're going to discuss reverse mortgages. Uh, George is really knowledgeable; has been around him a long time, and uh, I've talked about reverse mortgages from time to time on this show, and I kind of reacquainted myself with them. I read uh, Wade Fowles' book, who's he's one of the people that's one of the top uh, educators at the College for Financial Planning. He's written a book, and I think he updated his book on reverse mortgages. And like so many people, I've kind of had a negative view on reverse mortgages. But as I reacquainted myself in the last couple of days, I'm starting to think, you know what, guys, we this is an issue. It's a real financial planning issue. And when you get people in the likes of Bob Merton, Dave, you know Bob Merton, Nobel Prize winner, uh, who worked with you at Dimensional Fund Advisors, or you like <laughs> to say you worked with him. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's kind of one of his key components of sort of an ultimate, you know, key retirement piece. Uh, so it's not, it's, it, so there's some really, really bright people that are kind of bringing it to light that, you know what, we need to take a, maybe a better look at reverse mortgage. So we're going to talk a little bit about that in a bit. And uh, if people have any questions on that, they can feel free to call in with your questions or text your questions on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line. Well, let's see. Lots happened in the last couple of weeks. It seems like uh, it seems like a lot of if you kind of showed up on a Monday and went home on a Friday and looked where the market was by the end of the week, it might last week for instance was a good example. It didn't look like it did much for the week, but there seemed to be moments of sheer terror in between. You know, up a thousand points one day, down a thousand points. And unlike back when I was younger, your guys' age, that's when a thousand points really meant something. And uh, so there's there's been a lot. Of volatility, but you know the one area, and, and for you, two fellas, um, been in the business for less than ten years. You're you really haven't been faced with a bond market that you know basically is down almost as much as the stock market. It's just it's been a long time since we've had that type of conditions. I can remember them, um, and so that I looked at the Vanguard Balanced Index Fund. So that's about sixty percent for sixty percent stocks. 40% bonds. Pretty standard issue, I think, S&P 500-like stocks for that, that component. 
and it's down 17% off its highs. So for a balanced portfolio, that's that's it's not in the record books, but it's really one of the bigger moves that we've seen in at least four decades for a portfolio like that. So there really hasn't been too many places to hide. The bond market, depending on your maturities, has been hit. I think the Vanguard total bond market index must be down over 20% off its highs. Those are gigantic moves for bonds, which means we've had gigantic moves in interest rates up for the bond market. And uh, so, and then we get, of course, we get the news that we had negative GDP. I didn't realize that I wish Fred was here today. You know, I've, I'm still operating under the old uh, National Bureau of Economic Research, you know, thinking, hey, it's two quarters in a row of negative GDP is what a recession is. And evidently, They've changed theirs. Now it defines a recession as a significant decline in economic activity spread across the economy, lasting for more than a few months, normally visible in real GDP, real income, employment, industrial production, and whole, wholesale retail sales. So, uh, But I don't know. I would, thought I'd also reacquaint listeners with how many recessions we've had because in this article that my son Paul sent me, uh, there have been 34 recessions, in case anybody's counting, 34 recessions since 1854. Of course, the most recent was in 2020 when the, during the pandemic, and it was very short-lived. Um, since 1980, there have been five such periods of negative economic growth that were considered recessions. <coughs> Excuse me. Contrast that with the Depression, which is... You guys don't want it. We don't want to see a depression, do we, George? No. Depression's deep and long-lasting recession. We think of the Great Depression where the decline of 33% in the quantity of goods and services produced. So GDP, back then, they probably called it a gross national product. Uh, at least they did for a long time. I don't know if back to then. Um, but imagine that, an 80 to 85% loss in the stock market in just about a three-and-a-half-year period. That will get your attention. And we've talked a little bit about that. Those are what we call fat tail events. Really, really low pro- uh, probability, but if they occur and you're in opposition properly, they can change your life. Uh, so we have to watch out. So there's been a lot. Of course, we saw the rate hike, the Federal Reserve. People were afraid they were going to raise it by three-quarters of a percent, but they came out and raised it at a half a percent. That day, the stock market, I think, was up 1,000 points. The next day, it was down 1,000 points. Um, and it's just been sort of chaotic. But in some ways, just at least until the last couple of days, the broad U.S. market was down pretty much equal to what a typical correction in any given year would be. Um, so you would like to call it a rather pedestrian type of decline, but I think there's so much news with war, inflation that we haven't encountered in four decades, uh, you know, re- potential recession people are worried about. So there's a, there's got a lot of people worried. And, uh, you know, you guys getting much feedback at this point, or is it still quiet on the Western front? Uh, for me, I think it's still very quiet. A, a couple of, you know, emails or calls combined. So it's been very calm. I think for, for people who maybe don't have an advisor, there's probably more concern and panic for someone who's going into this alone, as most people do, as we know about half of people manage their own investments in retirement alone. But I think there's a lot of noise of like the drums of concern, whether it be the war, whether it be inflation, <laughs> that can get anybody rattled relatively easily. Um, but for the people that, that I've personally been working with, just reassuring them that, like you said, Paul, this is, you know, as you called it, a pedestrian, pretty fairly common type decline. Um, it's not a big deal event. It doesn't mean it doesn't make you stay up at night from time to time or worry. But from, you know, giving a, a real good historical perspective, it's pretty normal to be expected type event. We just didn't know when or how it would come about. Well, as I wrote in my past Sunday article, you know, it's the media always makes it sound like it's a hundred year flood. And really what we're getting is kind of the typical. Now I don't want to downplay it. So it's easy to come off sometimes guys like, Oh, it's, it's just normal. And Mm -hmm. it's as if not having any empathy for investors, real investors who particularly people that are retired, that are saying, well, wait a minute, when I see 15% of my portfolio seemingly disappear in a very short period of time, that's quite troubling. Uh, and, and I can identify with that. I, I think I said last show, I haven't looked at my overall aggregated account balances for probably three months. Um, and, and there's, 
and I read Ben Carlson's article the other day. Ben Carlson is a prolific writer, really one of the best, I think, financial writers if, if people aren't reading his articles. He's with Ritholtz Wealth Management. But I noticed he shared that that's one of the things he doesn't do during turmoils. He never, he said he hadn't looked at his statements for the last few months, too. And I said, well, I'm not the only person. <laughs> and like he said, I could probably come pretty close mentally. But when you physically go look at that number, I think, it, I think that stirs up emotions that aren't there as opposed to just speculating, eh, I suppose it's down X dollars. I actually had an email this morning from a client that <laughs> said almost exactly that. I haven't even looked at my statement in the last several months. How scary is it? And I, <laughs> in some ways, it's like, that's, you know, I'm really proud of this person for taking that approach and not, yeah. you know, just saying, look, I know it's, it's not going to make me happy looking at my statement necessarily. Um, but what I've found a lot of times, I, I've really, as Ryan said, only had a few people call, not super been out of shape even, just kind of more curious, how's my plan doing? You know, is everything going to be okay? It's sometimes the call, hey, should I be scared? Yeah, exactly. Um, but in this case, I think the last couple times I've gotten that question, people have been surprised that it's not worse than it actually is when Could you be, say what what isn't worse their pl- you know their prospects of their plan viability or th- i think how both much the market's down? just pure investment performance uh, in particular i think people and i think it is because as you said in some ways there's multiple things that you could point to that are scary that are going on right now that theoretically could have a negative impact or probably already have had a negative impact on the stock market and i think people see these headlines and they expect their portfolio to be down even more than it actually is. Right. I, I noticed uh, with your brother Dan, Daniel, we had a meeting, I think it was uh, last Thursday or Friday, a client that's been with us for about a year. And Daniel said, yeah, he's a little bit worried. So, you know, we're going to have a meeting. And it was a Zoom meeting, as it turned out. But you know, and, and, and I tried to make him understand, look, I'm glad you checked in. You know, we don't want you stewing about these types of things when, when you sometimes just a good discussion will make us feel better. But more than that, when the client – we didn't do a real good job, as it turns out, of letting him know that <clears throat> his plan is just fine. You know, it, it had a, started out with a 5% chance of maybe a modest change that you might not like, but modest. And now it's only a 10% chance. So, I mean, there's – and as soon as he saw that number, he goes, oh, so my plan is still really viable. It really hasn't done any damage to – and in this case, I think they're going to retire in 2031. And he said, oh, no, you're you're still on for – There's, in fact, it's a yawner. It really, from a statistical perspective, it really hasn't changed the outlook of the plan at all. As soon as that light bulb goes off, and that's why – how often do you guys hear me say, you know, the plan is everything. The management of the money, the money is just a servant to the plan. Uh, and, and the fact that we anticipate things much worse than the current environment is why our plans remain so viable, uh, even when you get a pretty good shakeout in the market. And, I mean, the other thing that's helped is, you know, this decline is a decline from uh, market high after two incredible years in the stock market. Yeah. So what I was finding is a lot of my clients' plans if anything, we're slightly overfunded towards the peak of the market. So that means, you know, even after this decline, their plan's still in good shape. And I, I had a, one other client um, email and just said, hey, are we within the guardrails of our plan? And spe- <laughs> <laughs> speaking wow. of being, like, proud of clients, I was like, man, this is amazing. I must have done a good job kind of explaining. Explain guardrails just for, just for a minute. And, and the, this is – guardrails are kind of the terminology that we use, just saying, look, when we're determining – you know, how much a client can spend in retirement because we deal primarily with retirees. We basically are always monitoring the status of the plan and we have these guardrails. And basically, if if the plan status drops below a certain threshold, then we would make a downward adjustment to probably the portfolio withdrawal if someone's retired. And if um, you exceed our upper guardrail, then that would be the trigger for increasing spending in retirement. Uh, increasing portfolio withdrawals or making some other, you know, positive adjustment. And we try to get people to focus on, look, this plan is not set in stone. There's going to be adjustments. We start out conservative, but there is a chance that, you know, we could, if we get a really extreme market decline, like a Great Recession type decline, we might pull back your portfolio withdrawal a little bit. And um, as much as I, I try to introduce that concept to clients, I think sometimes no matter what, they don't always... I don't know, really totally just internalize it. And 
just hearing this from a client, like, hey, are we within the guardrails of our plan? I was like, right. okay, they get it. Yeah, they get it. <laughs> so uh, the other thing, remember how often we talked towards, well, all of last year, when we had a very strong stock market, and we seemed like perpetually were saying, look, we're rebalancing again, which meant, we oh, yes, asked with these new highs, these guardrails are getting a little stretched uh, in the good way, and it's time to rebalance the allocations. The stock portion outgrew itself to beyond our targets, and we would rein it in. So all of last year and heading into this year, we were doing a lot of rebalancing. Unfortunately, what we rebalanced to bonds, they've actually been hit too. But still, the, that, that process and that discipline of continuous rebalancing. Now, when I say continuous, we don't do it once a month. Sometimes it's once a year, but in the last few years, it's been two or three times a year. And in 2020, during the pandemic, we probably we probably, we probably uh, rebalanced on both sides. Right. Early in the p- pandemic, we were buying more stocks and selling bonds to increase our stock position back to target. And then by the end of the year, we were working the other way where we were selling out. There's nothing magic to that. It's just having that discipline in a process that also helps. The reason I say that, as you mentioned, that you reminded us that, yes, we came off of two really strong, powerful up years in the stock market. And uh, and so a, a 15 or 20% decline from that still leaves you at pretty lofty wealth levels for most people. And then I've had you know a couple clients retire very recently. Um, so kind of their first experience becoming a client, retiring, is my portfolio goes down immediately after that. And I've noticed that really is the scenario that triggers anxiety with people because it's like, man, just my luck, you know, and how's my plan still doing? And one thing that I've tried to do up front is I always talk to clients about, look, that absolutely can happen. There is a chance that that will happen. You will retire and immediately experience a market decline. And if that happens, here's the adjustment we will make. And so I had one of the clients that just retired call me and just kind of ask about how's the plan doing and everything and we just kind of reviewed the initial plan and then where the plan is now and just kind of went over it and again this person was fairly surprised that oh my plan's still actually in really good shape and I was like yeah because remember when we built your plan I showed you the impact of a great recession return and that's like a 50 plus percent decline in the stock market we're down about 15 percent so when we're building our plan to withstand declines of 50%, you know, much worse scenarios than what we've experienced, a 15% decline or so in the stock market is kind of a just a blip. I just think about how transformational it is for clients to shift their attention from looking at the actual number decline in their portfolio to the percentage of how their plan's performing. Whether you look at it saying it's performing this percent well or there's a slight percentage chance we'll have to decrease our spending however you choose to choose to look at it you focus on the big picture and that you know the plan is looking at presumably if you're a retiree the next 30 years or so of of your life whereas the you know the account statement that you're looking at is an immediate snapshot in time as if it's like permanently lost which we always try to you know remind clients your your asset balance is only a snapshot it's not permanently lost presuming of course you don't make the ultimate mistake of selling your positions out during a decline, give it enough patience and discipline, it'll come back. And that's what I think the plan shifts the attention to is the bigger picture. And I think that's a key point. And I think that's one of the, if there's one of the th- things I notice that, that seems to be universal is all through our working career, we're always thinking about creating wealth, creating wealth, creating a number, creating a number where we really ought to be shifting that focus to cr- thinking about what kind of an income stream am I creating for my retired self that I can maintain my standard of living throughout two to three decades of retirement? And then instead of even focusing on the fluctuation of that wealth factor, is just how, what, let's focus on the fluctuation of what really matters, that income factor. And that is where our precise, when we're managing risk, that's the risk we're really focusing on is we're trying to minimize the chances that that income stream will be impacted in a negative way and if it is, it should be modest. And it's a complete different dynamic. And mm-hmm. I think this might be the first time we've actually addressed that in yeah. that way. That's why it's resonating with me sitting here. I'm kind of like, yes, we're all starting to get it, that it's that management of that, the stability of the income stream that's important. And when you build, I try to, and this kind of gets what you were saying, Dave, and then, then I'll let you guys talk because you're over there waving practically. 
If, I always like to think about it. It's not a perfect analogy, but if we were going to build a beach home for somebody's dream beach home, we would build that home to withstand a four or a five category hurricane. And if in the, that's the case, the analogy would be this is just a summer squall of what we're, it's not going to have any impact on the viability of that building any more than a 15 or 20% decline is going to have much of an impact. You might have to replace a shingle or two, or it might be really modest. You may have to get your house cleaned a little bit, but no real damage. And that's what we're really focusing on is that stability of income and retirement. I don't know if this is just a psychological thing I struggle with, but sometimes I worry that clients think I'm just being almost not overly optimistic, but... Um, I think that's fair because I get accused of that. I, I think I worry that they're like, well, how can it, how can we not need an adjustment? You know, mm-hmm. kind of like almost disbelief. Like, is he really... Is he really monitoring things, yeah. and is he really going to tell me I need to cut my spending? And I don't know. Lately, I've been <laughs> just in my emails to clients or, or phone calls just reminding them, like, no, I really am monitoring this, and I will tell you. Like, if we get, you know, a decline like a 2008, you're going to have to pull back your spending a little bit. Like, I'm not, you know, BSing you. I, I right. really am monitoring this. It's just that, as you said, when you plan for something much worse, when you get a 15% decline or so, it, if you if – you, plan properly, a 15 or 20% decline in the stock market should not impact your retirement income. I think it's kind of the paradox of some of my newsletters that I write every quarter. I'm an incurable optimist about the future. And sometimes clients then think, well, you know, Paul, he thinks everything's going to work out. But at the same time, I like to remind the clients, no, that's that's not why, that's not, your plan is n- in no way, quite to the contrary, your plan is in no way based on my optimistic views, which I think, uh, you know, optimism is the only world view that squares with the facts. Despite that, from a planning perspective, we're going to create a plan that anticipates that nothing works out. You're going to live longer than we expect. You're going to have larger long-term care expenses than we expect. You're going to have worse returns than we expect. You're going to have worse inflation outcome than we expect. And the sequence of returns, you're going to get not only your returns going to be poor over your three decades, probably going to have really bad returns on the front end. That's basically, I'd say trifecta. I don't know what a, a fi, I'll call it a fivefecta. Uh, yeah, a okay? quinfecta. <laughs> okay, I, I like fivefecta. Um, and we know that possibly one or two of those things, in fact, might happen. But the chances of all of them happening, so... When we're even telling our clients, because basically when we're starting a plan out, is it safe to say still that we're, we're, the chance of a, a, a modification to the downside, that is we have to increase our, decrease our spending a little bit, is 5% or less? Is that fair? So one out of 20? Yeah, I think it's that you're not able to maintain that spending on average over the lifetime of your plan is okay. kind of the way I think of it. Okay. Oh, I think that's fair. I think of it more of a just a, a short-term setback modification, but it could be that it could be that as well. And so the only reason you get to that five percent, one out of twenty chance, and it's so small, is because we are throwing in all those things that can go wrong on the front end of it. We're throwing the kitchen sink of the stuff that can go wrong. I mean, the alternative is well, you could start out spending more, but then you're going to have higher odds of a reduction to your spending. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you could set up a plan that says, okay, well, you'd like to spend more. All right. Well, instead of five thousand a month, we can spend six thousand a month. I'm just making up numbers so nobody hang right. on them. Uh, but instead of a 5% chance of a modification that you might not like, it's 20% chance. Yeah. And, that, and that's not irrational. That's just mm-hmm. a, that's an individualized choice where, you know what, I'll, I'll play those odds and I'll try to enjoy my retirement on the front end a little more. Yeah, and I think when, I, when we talk with clients about that, we say there's no right or wrong. It comes down to personal like preference and appetite. If you are the type of person who says, I know that I'm taking on more now, that means it just means there's a, a shorter window uh, where you might actually have to pull back sooner than the other client who starts out with a lesser withdrawal. So it's not a bad plan. It just means that, you know, here's our new set of rules or guidelines that we're going to be operating under. We talk about it in advance. You say, listen, this is the kind of pullback that would warrant now a reduction in spending, but you've decided that's perfectly acceptable because I value having a little extra income now. Um, and that's, it's worth the trade off. But you guys are pretty brutal though. You, you, you don't, <laughs> you try to talk people out of that, you know, because human nature being what it is, we, we're always trying to manage those expectations. Um, you know, one of the things I noticed, remember last year and kind of m- much of the year before the FANG stocks of Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, 
Google, uh, Apple is the other A. Um, a lot of people that got frustrated with a global portfolio and you know didn't like the fact that they were earning 12 or 13% for the year when other stuff was earning 30%, a lot of people chased those stocks. ARK was kind of the flagship ARK is the symbol of the exchange traded fund was the flagship of the new world and you know where to be. I would remind people that off its high, where a lot of people got like typical, this universal tendency to destruct themselves, you know, by chasing that hot performance, that fund is now down seventy five percent off of its high. But even things like Netflix, uh, Amazon's down forty two percent off of its high. These are pretty significant declines. You talk about nearly having your money. Uh, and then Netflix is off. Netflix is off forty-eight uh, percent. Arc is down. Oh, next net. I was wrong. Netflix is down seventy-five percent. Arc is down sixty-eight percent. So a little more than two-thirds of your money. Yeah. And you know that's that's what performance chasing. That's the kind of damage it can do to people. But it's such a strong tendency to want to chase that performance. Yeah. And obviously, you know, those did so well in 2020, 2021 because. What is, you know, what is Netflix? It's a streaming at-home service. People are at home more. They were having plenty of time to do this. They weren't traveling. They weren't generally seeing people. So that, in you know, only helped their advantage. Same thing uh, with Amazon. Everyone's ordering stuff or trying to anyway. I remember trying to get things. It's kind of a, an odd period for a while. So, yeah, that bids up those prices. People pour in, and then, you know, the bottom can fall out. And maybe it's a resort just back to normalcy. And it seems like, parano- you know. It, it seems like... Anytime there's a story, like a great strong story to justify strong performance or high prices is when things really, really kind of get inflated, but ultimately end poorly. Like, wasn't it, I mean, back in the day, like the Nifty 50? Oh, yeah. That was I forget. The there was kind of a specific story behind that, was, right? It was the it was Nifty just, 50. Those were the, like, the high flyers. Yeah. And I just feel like people will hear a story like that and then they almost start to just totally ignore the fact that what you pay for something matters. It's just <laughs> kind of like, no, it's just, there are great companies. It's only going to get better. It's it's going to go up from here. It's like, yeah, but even if something is a, a company is a great company and all those companies still are great companies, if you pay way too much for something, it might not be a good investment. Right. So we have a text. Uh, can you give me an idea of what a middle-class person would do in retirement? I'm looking for how a middle-class person would operate with their Social Security, a pension, and maybe a half a million in retirement. That's a pretty good middle class, yeah. right? Yeah. A lot of people would sign up for that. But you know what? That's a typical – that's not an, an unusual client. In our client base, we probably have a third of our client base that, that, that this uh, person just uh, gave us. So half a million dollars, Social Security, a pension – uh, you can change the numbers to make it easier. I don't think we need to, but I'm just wondering how most middle-class people operate in retirement, how much they have to withdraw from the retirement plans. Okay, uh, let's spend five minutes or so on that, and then I want get to get to George Bruce's and talk about uh, reverse mortgages. So this is kind of right up your guys' mm-hmm. bailiwick. This is what walks in our door several times a week. Uh, half a million bucks, and let's put some numbers on it. Social Security between a husband and a wife or a Two spouses, uh, to try to be more hip these days, um, of a couple thousand dollars, and maybe a pension fund of ten, uh, ten thousand. Oh, I say a thousand a month. So we have two thousand Social Security per month, a thousand in a fixed pension, and a half a million dollars. Can you spitball? Is that is that fair to ask you guys to sort of say if you were in our world, this is probably what you're looking at? Yeah, I, th- I think fairly easily. I mean. Your pension and Social Security are what they are, but obviously the timing matters. So sometimes people retire before they're eligible to claim Social Security or eligible to actually receive their pension income. So there are little things that you have to account for. So let's say they're taking their Social Security already. Okay. And pension already. And then you've got 500000 in an investment portfolio. So really, I mean, the key question is, okay, how much can we withdraw from this investment portfolio? Because the other sources of income are what they are. And the other sources, I'm going to – I'll deduct – just from a recent work I've done with inflation, I'm, I'm going to call the fixed pensions worth 500 a month over that time frame of retirement by the time you take inflation's impact. And Social Security should hold pretty true. So I'll say we have 2500 or 30000 a year coming from pension, even though it's going to be more than that nominal dollars. I'm talking mm-hmm. about that pension. So I'm going to give that credit for 30000 of income there and then 500000 in 
an investment portfolio? So I'd probably say about 1800 a month. I'd in, say two. Okay. Yeah. So I use it's four that, and a half. It's in that range. I use four and a half percent as a just back of the envelope math as far as how much you could withdraw. So four and a half percent, okay. 500,000, 500,000 times 0.045 is 22,500 a year. Divide that by 12, it's 1875 a month. Okay, so you have so 2500 plus your number. So you're going to have, you said it was how much gross? So uh, 1875. That's, that's the monthly. The annual was oh, 22500. So I would say you have 30,000 plus 22, so you have uh, dollars $53,000 of spendable. Pretty close to after-tax income because you're not going to have a huge tax bill. Right. I would say it's a fifty thousand livable, right checks for retirement. And though inflation has kicked up, that's a pretty respectable retirement. I think that most people. Here's what I find: most people that have that situation are living lives where they're probably not spending that fifty-two thousand or fifty thousand a year. They may be spending closer to forty, and they're actually going to retire into a higher standard of living, if you can believe it. Might be a little tougher going forward for a while, but it's, that is the answer to the question. Ryan, would you square with that? Yeah, that was the fifty thousand is the number I backed into real quickly. You just guys like, are just know. so conservative. That <laughs> <laughs> got too quick. And, and the one thing that I was thinking about is like you know we put numbers to the pension and we put numbers to the social security. So depending on what it is, maybe those pension numbers are rather large, and the social security could be larger too. Right. What I look at, of course, and, and we all would review is if there's a higher amount to these fixed payments and maybe even if the pension is is like in a university pension where you're getting a nice cost of living adjustment exactly you might be able to look at it and say well i have this kind of very fixed payment streams with rising income from social security and pension maybe i can get away with a little higher stock exposure because i have such stability so to speak in these pension and, and social security sources um and then over the long term maybe be able to have a little higher standard of living than someone who might be just have run-of-the-mill 40-50% stock exposure. And one other option that my son David loves is you can also front-load retirement a little bit if you want. <laughs> there's there's trade-offs for doing that. So there's ways to make that number 55000 or even 60000 a year potentially, but you're going to have to be more flexible in your spending, right. a willingness to, to modify your spending down a little bit for a while, things like that. And, uh, you know, and, and then sometimes there's a way to, if we – the things we can't really resolve here is, well, maybe one spouse takes uh, Social Security at 70 and waits, and it gives us some better longevity. But in a nutshell, for that person uh, with a couple thousand Social Security, a $1,000 fixed pension, and a half a million dollars of investable assets, we're going to go with 50000 a year spendable, a little more than 4000 a month. All right, George Brustis from Chicago. I, can I say Chicago? You can. Or Barrington. You can say I Chicago. I hate it when I go on vacation. You say, where are you from? I'm from Illinois. Oh, I love Chicago. Well, people, you know, I mean, <laughs> Chicago, Chicago, so it's okay. Um, not to add to what you just said. Go ahead. But obviously. But don't criticize it. No, no. <laughs> but obviously with a reverse mortgage, in, the, in the, the case of this particular individual that sent the question in, if they own a home, and uh, depending on what they owe and, and, and so forth on the home and whatever, there's a way of creating income from that as well. Let's talk about that. Okay, so first, uh, there's, uh, I, there's, it's getting better, but there's been kind of this, uh, when you bring up reverse mortgages, I still see the flinch when I bring it up sure. with clients. Sure. Um, but it's changed somewhat, hasn't it, haven't some of the guarantees and the issues with, well, what if my spouse is younger? Yes. Are they going to get kicked out of the house? Or we won't. A lot of that's been resolved, hasn't it? It has been. Um, if you go back a number of years, 10 or 11 years ago, uh, not even that far ago, um, the rules were changed. One, everybody has to undergo counseling from FHA. What that means is is they're not taking my word for what I'm telling them. They're hearing it from an independent third-party source that this is how it works. This is what's happening. This is what's going, going to happen. That's an oversimplification, but for Let's just go with that for the moment. Um, the The reverse mortgage today has safeguards for the spouse or the non-borrowing spouse or someone else that's on title. Previously, uh, a lender might leave the spouse off in order to get the loan done. The, sp- the one would perish, would die, and then they thought that they would be able to remain in the home. 
okay, and they weren't able to. So that's been changed now. So that there's the provision in there that when you do a reverse, all the people in title that are of age are included on it, and they have the right of survivorship for as long as they want to stay in the home. Now, let me explain reverse mortgages a little Okay, Let please. me go back a little bit. So there is probably 80 million people that are um, available for reverse mortgage. Okay, you have to be 62 for a standard HECM, which is a home equity conversion mortgage, which is the name for a reverse mortgage. We can also add that there's also another level of reverse mortgage that's been created now, and it's it's a proprietary product by some of the lenders, and you can go down to age 55 for that. And so the reverse mortgages have typically been something where people said it's a last resort. Right. I, right? I mean, I can only have this much Social Security. I don't have enough money to live off of. I have to do something. I have to do reverse. In that case, what we typically do with that type of individual is they probably owe some money on their home, um, and they're living on a fixed income, and more than likely, they don't have a financial planner, okay? Honestly, most of the people that we deal at the retail level, so to speak, are people that are doing this for themselves. Okay. And they had not put together a plan. They figured, I have what I have. I might have a pension. I'm going to live on Social Security. And it's getting more and more difficult to live that way. I mean, costs are going up. They have been going up, and now they're really going up. So they're looking for a way to tap into some additional income. And so what we could do is, if, in, as an example, if someone has a $400,000 house and they owe $200,000, and they're paying $1,800 a month on that for principal and interest. Might be less, but let's just use that sure. number. Um, we could give them a reverse mortgage, and we could pay off that amount of money. And they can use that $1,800 to live off of. And they don't have to make a payment, principal and interest on the home, for as long as that's their principal residence. And if they choose to stay there till they're no longer here, then what happens is it's a loan, okay? And, and I think we need to describe that. Instead of you paying the loan, the loan is paying you, okay? And so they get to use those funds. Now, like every other loan, it does have an interest rate, but what happens to the interest, it, it accrues and it goes onto the back end of the loan. So if you started out with X, you owe 100000 and you live another 30 years, you may end up owing 300000 just as, as right. an example. Right. Now, if in fact, at the end of the day, you owe more than the house is worth, that's okay, because with a reverse mortgage, one of the things, like we talked about, that they changed is there is a fee that you pay to FHA to ensure one of two things. One, that if your house is ever uh, is not worth as much as what you owe, it's a non-recourse loan, and that money is forgiven. The heirs of the home, or whatever, hand the keys back to the lender, and that's the end of it. If, on the other hand, they started with 100, they owe three, but the house is now worth eight, the heirs, or if they decided to sell, right. would pay off the loan, get a new loan and pay it off and stay there, or sell the home, pay off the loan, and they would get the proceeds. One of the misconceptions of reverse mortgages is that the bank owns the home. Right. Okay? And you always retain ownership of the home. So you keep the title. So yeah. it's times like these, guys, that I've been thinking more and more about this. One of the things that, you know, I'm going to talk about several of the uses, but <clears throat> I said, well, George, you know, I have so many clients that have a home of decent, you know, worth. Uh, they may have it paid off. They may not. But usually if they have a mortgage, it's not that big. They have all the money to spend that they could spend. If I sent them more money, they would send it back to me. I mean, it, it sounds like a high-class problem, but it's just people that don't, you know, you're, right. people are wired the way they're wired. And I thought to myself, you know what? If I have $300,000 of equity or 200000 that I could go out and get it or the available to me through a home equity conversion mortgage, maybe I just give the money to the kids now. Instead of wait, waiting till I wake up on a cloud and then they get the house, probably when they don't need it as much is when they could use it as they're younger. So let you me ever see that done? Yes. Let me give you an example of that. One, one, first of all, I stated that generally most of the business that's done in the, uh, is direct to the consumer. Okay. We love working with financial planners. You know what their goals are. You know everything about that client. I get a couple of weeks when I meet somebody, I call somebody, I talk to them, 
they tell me I need a reverse mortgage. I need, I need something. I have to solve this problem. I mean, it's so much nicer when we're dealing with professionals because you've already given them a plan and we come to them and we can put, we can tailor make the, the plan for you. There are eight lenders out there primarily that do reverse mortgage funding, okay? I was with one of the largest ones, the one you'll, you'll see on TV all the time. You mean the big Tom Selleck? Yeah. I could say it. That, that's where I started. Uh, Magnum PI. And that's I where I, I learned the business. Uh, and they're great. They really are. But they have um, very stringent standards on what they do. Uh, and they also don't have all of the other proprietary products that some of the other lenders have. So when I have a client that comes to me, I look at what's the best available thing. And I have eight different places to choose from. With AAG, I only had one. Okay. okay. And do you ever see people uh, that want to age in place and maybe they're thinking, well, we're, we don't really have enough money to fix it the way we want so that we can age in place? Is that a, do well, you, do you see that being done? Absolutely. There's a variety of reasons why. I'm people, just thinking of my client base and issues that. So why I, they do it? They I'm want to improve the house, especially now. You're going to sell a house, where are you going to go? Right. Okay. Right. So. So we're seeing a lot of that, where they're improving the home and staying in the home. Unfortunately, you have people that, you know, they're a fall away from maybe needing a reverse mortgage because all of a sudden they need care, and care is really expensive. Maybe they need it in the home, or maybe they need to go to an, a facility, or maybe one of them does. So there's a variety of reasons why people need a reverse. There's another one that you talked about, pulling equity out. We actually did a reverse mortgage for uh, – a gentleman in Florida, had a $10 million home. Now, you would never think that people would do that. He pulled $5 million out, and this was a year and a half ago. His house is now, because Florida and Arizona and the values are crazy, is worth twice that. And he came back and said, I want another five. So why would you do that? And he said, look, first of all, I can make more money from my money than it costs me. But secondly, I don't want to just leave this to my kids. I want to go travel the world, my kids and my grandkids, and experience things with them. And just leaving them money is, why would I want to do that? And so I'm thinking, go ahead, Dave. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, realistically, what I'm seeing with our client base is, you know, people are living into their 90s, especially yeah. healthier, wealthier people. And by the time they pass away, they leave a bunch of money to their children, but their children are like 65 and already financially independent. And it would be nice to essentially, as my dad said, accelerate that mm -hmm. giving because your home is a huge asset that most people just kind of leave sitting there mm -hmm. until it's a big bucket of money dropped on their kids. It's like, well, they could have used it when they were 35 and had kids in school and medical bills and all these things. And then from our perspective, guys, I'm thinking, okay, we get a year like this and suppose it ends the year, the year ends badly. Maybe you shut off your portfolio withdrawals so you're not making it worse. And if I'm going to take 50000 instead of out of my portfolio, I'm going to draw on my home equity line of credit. You stay invested, right? And so can a person, as soon as they're 62, apply for a home equity line of credit, sort of? They don't have to use it, but it's always there? Yes. And so you could have this line of credit where you say, I always call it, in case of emergency, break glass, and you spend their money there. Wade Fowle, who's, you know well-known in the industry, he keeps talking about that as solving the sequence of returns risk early in retirement. That means if you get really bad returns on the front end of retirement, it tends to kind of not bode well for your overall retirement. That'd be a way to basically inoculate yourself largely against that sequence of return risk. What, what's nice about the, the uh, line of credit associated with it, it basically goes up to the rate that you're being accruing. So if you don't draw the money, your access to your equity line goes up by that percentage every year. Let's say it's 4%. So also, just a quick explanation. Um, depending on age, a reverse mortgage is based on age. On the age of the borrow, it's based on the value of the home, and it's based on the interest rate. And so right now, kind of a, it's sort of like if you're in your 60s, you're getting 40% of the right. value, 70s, 50%, 80s. 60%. Which makes sense because if you're 60, you're going to might accrue interest for 30 years versus the 80-year-old might be 10. It's kind of like right now, it's 85 minus, you know, 25. Okay. <laughs> and then and 75 minus 25, yep. and it takes you, you know, yeah. kind of where you are. And so I can, I can see 
my my brain's been spinning since I three years ago when I read Wade Files book. I thought we really I got excited and you know and I kind of drifted away from me. Now I'm re- excited again. Nope. Um, I can see Dave or Ryan. What about so often we do Roth conversions on the front end of mm-hmm. retirement, and what you're trying to do then is not have all this extra income. Mm-hmm. So maybe you draw from your home equity uh, conversion mortgage. Heck them. Yep. Heck them in the name. <laughs> and uh I'm so corny. Yeah. Uh and and so there's there's so many different ways to use a home equity to optimize your now I see where Bob Merton I've just been reading a lot about Bob Merton's because he's done so much work on lifestyle and keeping up with your standard of living uh throughout retirement and he, you know, he's been beating on this is such a missed opportunity to be thinking about. So when I went through the RICP course, which is like the Retirement Income Certified Professional, Mm -hmm. I mean, the way they framed it, from what I remember, it's been a couple years now, is basically like, look, for a lot of people, their home is their biggest asset, and they just don't use it at all Mm -hmm. in their financial plan. And then it's just money that's left to their children. And it really doesn't make sense to just totally ignore this major portion of your assets when you could actually use it to generate retirement income. Well, Dr. Faust says basically that you will do better utilizing the resources of of the equity in your home and investing it than you will by just leaving it there, Mm -hmm. notwithstanding some of the spectacular returns we've seen in real estate in the last two years. And it's helped that interest rates were extraordinarily low. That's one area in life where low interest rates, they kind of hurt retirees because they're not getting much income, but the offset is when the interest rates were low on uh, reverse mortgages, it was a help. One quick comment about sort of the volume. So um, 80 million people are eligible, 62 and above. Um, 10,000 people a day turn 65. And Dr. Fowler says that 14% of that 80 million, 12 12 million people, something like that, um, it's actually bigger. If you include the 55%, 55-year-olds are kind of, what they expect will do reverse mortgages. We do 50,000 reverse mortgages a year. In the last 10 years, we've done a half a million. Okay. There's a whole lot of, there's a whole lot of runway left. Mm-hmm. What about like costs, like closing costs okay. just for, because I, I feel like that would be a hesitation that people would have. It is. It is. And the reason is, is that with a HECM, there's 2% of the appraised value of the home that Right goes right to FHA, and that's really that insurance that's factor. The insurance so that factor. If the house isn't worth as much as the loan, you can walk away. It's not your problem. Two reasons: not only is it the insurance factor for the non-recourse, the house not being worth as much, it's also that if you do opt to do a line of credit, that money will never. You cannot take that away. If you have a line of credit from your bank and things start going a little funky, and you know all of a sudden the bank says, "Well, we're pulling in the lines," they can't do that with this. The line is there; it's there for you forever. Some of the strategies Wade Fowle wrote about in this article. <clears throat> first is you could spend your home equity first. Uh, then you could, or you could use what he calls the SACS and SACS coordination strategy, which is simply uh, that when markets are down for a year, in the subsequent year, you draw from the line of credit. If markets were up this year, then next year, you draw from the portfolio. So that that's one way to use it from a financial retirement planning standpoint. Um, you could use your home equity last. That is, you kind of uh, just, you basically, you know, you, if you use up your resources, then you go through your home equity last. Uh, and then some people uh, will just actually go get it and they'll get a monthly income or they'll get tenure payments. Tenure. Mm-hmm. And uh, in other words, it, instead of your house costing you money, your house is paying you. I mean, yeah. that sounds corny to say it. But it's essentially is what happened, and that's why it, it is a big swing because you go as in your example, you might go from paying eighteen hundred a month to receiving eighteen hundred a month. So now we're talking about, you know, all, what a thirty six hundred dollar a month swing in cash flow. Now, obviously, the eighteen hundred a month that you were paying would go away at some point when you pay off your mortgage, but still, in the immediate term, it's a thirty six hundred dollar swing in your cash flow. So it can be a big difference maker. Absolutely. One of the takeaways uh, for advisors he wrote is the idea of opening a reverse mortgage only after everything else has failed hurts retirement sustainability. It shouldn't be used as the last resort. Uh, he mentions that media has become more positive. So the, the industry, I think, is is coming around to it. I mean, it, it's something that 
we're trying to educate as much as we can that this is something that's useful for so many different people in so many different ways. In, in fact, that the text that we got, you know, the middle class person, Wade Fowle writes, it's really going to be helpful to the middle class, middle yep. income market. And, and so instantly I can think of, you know, one question I would ask that person is, do you have a home? Uh, do you have a mortgage? How much is the mortgage? What's the value of the home? So now maybe uh, that 50,000 number is, is a larger number because maybe either you use the home equity conversion mortgage to pay off the mortgage and you get that principal and interest you've been paying, or it's paid off and it becomes an asset to you that where you could say, well, you know what, we could start out with a higher withdrawal rate because we have this home equity conversion mortgage. I could think of a lot of uses uh, for this uh, for this. If people want to get a hold of you, George, uh, like I don't endorse anybody. No, I understand. But, Listen, but I couldn't have framed what you just said any I, better than you I, did. I, yeah. I, I don't think anybody could, George. You know, <laughs> I, if you learned about me, I, I'm a very humble person. But before I make that, that I just want to say one more thing. Okay. And one of the things we missed is that you can also use it to buy a home. Okay. So, uh, and a lot of people don't realize that as well. So if you're selling a home here and you want to buy a home in Florida and you know, it used to be that that was a good thing. You know, you, you could buy it for cheaper than you can now. Uh, but you may need some additional funds. You can use the existing funds you have, get up to half half of the value on a reverse mortgage, not have a mortgage on, on that home as well uh, that you have to make, make monthly payments on. And, you know. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way? Well, the best way is my name is George Brustis, uh, and my telephone number is 847 971 Nine one three six. Okay, and I'll have that number too. So in yeah. case anybody forgets the number, they can call me at three five six fourteen hundred. Our normal number. Uh, I want to take the last minute. I know I heard uh, Ryan Barnhart mention that Congressman Tim Johnson died. I think just in the last day or two. My family goes way back. We're old Urbana family, and in fact, Tim Johnson's dad was able to secure a full scholarship to Illinois State University for my brother Dave, um, nice. and. That through his relationship with my my father, they were really pretty close. We've we've known Tim Johnson forever, and so just want to say I'm sorry to hear that news. He was a great person. He was certainly an advocate for the people of Champaign Urbana and Champaign County, and even outside Champaign County, I suspect uh, it was a pretty pretty large district. And uh, just don't have enough good things to say about him. And just as an advocate for the people of this community. I would get letters from him. I, I still can't believe that he would still write letters and remind me, hey, I really miss your folks. You know, it was great to hear you today yes. or, or this. A true, he's uh, just a int very interesting gentleman and, uh, and really quite smart. So sorry to hear that and uh, ho hope the best for his family. I knew his kids, some of his children uh, used to hang out a little bit. So sorry to hear the news, but uh, on that note, we'll be back in a couple more weeks uh, with Paul Rudy's On the Money Ratio. Thanks, George Brewster, for talking about reverse mortgages. Thanks for Thanks. listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on DWS, paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. You can join Paul on the second and fourth Tuesdays of each month here on News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM. The views expressed in this program were those of the host and the guests and not necessarily those of the station. You're listening to News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM WDWS Champaign-Urbana, a Champaign multimedia group station.